turn once again to the book of Acts in chapter 15. The great meeting which we call the First Synod of the Church. We want to reconsider these things in light of the fact that we've just been to a synod, the delegates of our churches, and to continue to learn what we need to learn from this First Synod, the very Word of God regarding it, and the report of the reporters who were sent from the synod to convey the good news to the Gentiles. Want to pick up the narrative of this decision of the First Synod at verse 22. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. In verse 22, and our focus is going to be on verse 28, and we'll stop there for a few moments in our meditation. The Word of God. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they were doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Thus far we read this word of God, the the latter part, the aftermath of the decree of the first synod of Jerusalem. 
And I want to meditate with you for a few moments on the perspective that is given here in verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The United Reformed Churches of North America have just held their 12th synod since our inception as a federation, I think in 1995 or 6. And so the 12th synod has convened and its deliberations are ended. There is no more synod, uh, Synod Niagara 2022. It's the nature of these broader assemblies that they meet, then they disappear. They are not the church, after all, which abides forever. Synods are, in fact, meetings, broader assemblies of churches in the Reformed tradition that meet together, they're the broadest assemblies, to decide things that are ecclesiastical and spiritual and have to do with the running of the church and her ministry, things mundane even like paying the budget, askings that are required of the members of the federation, mission work and the ministry of the gospel, the discipline of the churches so that the churches are helped as they bring um, burdens to them. So this is an ecclesiastical gathering, kind of like the Old Testament kahels or holy gatherings of Israel. These are the New Testament counterpart to that. We learn a lot from the first synod as we uh, briefly commented in the preaching last Sunday before the convening of synod. There's a lot to learn here at this pivotal point in the church history of its coming together to decide a critical issue. And how shall the church minister to the Gentiles? How are people saved, Jew and Gentile? It all had to do with the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Much to learn here also from that perspective of the verse that is our text, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. You find here a divine agreement that's made between the Holy Spirit and the members of the delegations sent to report these things to the Gentiles. And a divine agreement as well, so it's being reflected upon, between the Holy Spirit and the convention, the synod itself. I do want to uh, make this note uh, by way of introduction before we get into this text. I keep on saying this is the first synod. Well, you might say to me, but Domini, that's not a word that's used in the Bible. It's not. It's one of those theological and ecclesiastical words that are used to express truth nonetheless. And the truth of the word itself of synod is indeed something we do see in that first gathering, whatever you want to call it, in Acts 15. For the truth of the word is the truth of two parts of the word, sun and hadas, which mean with and way, or as some have said, together on the way. And that's exactly what synods are. They are to remind us of our togetherness with God and with one another on the way to heaven. And I dare say, beloved, and this has been confirmed in me this past week, meeting with the brethren, these synods are needed. They are important. They are important for our churches and for the cause of Christ. We have here a remarkable thing 
and just to review, but not just to review, to go on from there. An agreement between the Holy Spirit of God and people. And an agreement about a most important thing, and that is the truth of the gospel that was set forth in that synod. Remember the no small dissension that arose and which was the occasion for the synod. You read of that in the first uh, verses of Acts 15. It was a matter of how we are to be saved. And some were saying among the Gentile converts, you, you say you're saved by grace, but you also have to keep the law. And you have to be circumcised. Your males have to be circumcised. And with that, they also had to keep the rest of the ceremonial law. And the Jews were concerned about this because they had a poor understanding of Christ's fulfillment of these ceremonial laws, his his fulfillment, not abolishing of them, but his fulfillment, so that the keeping of them, the being circumcised, for example, is no longer necessary, neither for Jew nor for Gentile. And so they wrestled with this, but really it was a, a conclusion to which they'd already come, the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, Peter, as his vision of the unclean animals shows in Acts 10, And then at the synod themselves, they came to the conclusion, by grace alone, we are saved. Jesus Christ is the expression of God's grace to us, and grace is God's free favor, his unmerited favor. Because of the gift of the Son, everything in the Christian church follows. If there's no gift of the Son, if there's no declaration that he is everything, then you have problems. But this synod decided to the peace of the church and the glory of God that Jesus Christ is sufficient. His grace is everything. This is what we delight in. Salvation is full and free through the pardon that God renders to us because the blood of Jesus avails for me and he avails for you. It avails for you. And there is this justification this declaration on Mount Calvary, on that bloody mount, that there's a people that's forgiven because a son has atoned. He's made God and sinners to be reconciled. That's what the cross of Golgotha, Calvary, is all about. God and sinners reconciled. There is this uh, reflection in heaven, as it were, upon the work of the son. It is Well, it is good. With my son, I am truly well pleased, God is saying there, because he satisfies my own justice. He is the one who glorifies me, as he even said in his last prayer, I have glorified you on the earth, but he has glorified the Father, especially when he laid down his life. And he laid down his life as Messiah, the representative of of his people, so that There might be a substitute, a lamb in the place of sinners. We have now to die no more and to pay the debt no more. It's paid. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And truly, that work of salvation is. And then there's the sanctifying work that's a result of the justifying work. The declaration of the judge, there's no right to hold you in prison and the working of God by the Holy Spirit to apply salvation, to turn the key 
in working in our lives so that we are set free to go out of the prison. The judges said it's okay not only, but it's right that we go, and the Holy Spirit has given us the impetus to walk out of the prison doors and to begin to express our liberty in Christ to be the people of God. That's the gospel. The free and the good news that is so desperately needed in this earth, which you've been given, beloved, and I've been given, and our churches have been given, and it's a great, great heritage. And all of the doctrines of the church are those which uphold the truth, that central truth of salvation in Jesus Christ. So that's what there's this agreement about. It seemed good. What seemed good? Well, the decision of that first synod seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. And it seemed good, and this, this gospel is expressed rather negatively, in laying no upon you Gentiles no greater burden than these necessary things and those four laws that have to do with truth, no idols, and love, being sensitive to the Jews who might stumble over your liberty to eat things, for example, offered to idols in itself, no sin. So this truth of the gospel in love now being conveyed among all sorts of people, Jew and Gentile, that's the thing that seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And there was a concurrence with people, of people, with the Holy Spirit. Now let me meditate with you, first of all, upon that wonder of it seeming good to the Holy Spirit, this wonderful truth of the first synod. Now, the Holy Spirit is God. We know that. In the book of Acts, chapter Five, I believe, or six. Uh, to lie to the Holy Ghost is to lie to God. It's to bring upon you the wrath of God. He's God, the third person of the Trinity. But now, how can anything seem good to God? I thought of that. And I hope you don't mind that your pastor thinks of those things. It's deep theology. Nowhere in the Bible, as far as I could see, is it ever said that anything seems good to God. The word simply is used often of people, in fact, who hesitate. Well, I think it's good to me. It's, it kind of seems good, and, and I'll go with that. For example, when a man thinks that he stands, in Corinthians, I think, he said, uh, he's warned, beware lest you think you stand lest you suppose you stand. Well, that same idea is used of others in rather tenuous situations, and so they make tenuous or kind of certain, uncertain certain conclusions about things. Well, we know from the Bible that God makes no uncertain certain conclusions and really makes no certain conclusions at all. You know why? Because he knows the truth from the beginning. And he doesn't go through a process of thinking in order to arrive at good conclusions. And he certainly doesn't speculate. Yeah, it seems good to me. If I find some other thing that's new, maybe I'll change my mind. There's really no reacting, in fact, of God. This is the high theology of the Bible. 
and we believe of the Reformed faith and, and of our churches. The truth of God. Well, here you have brought down to us this reflection upon what happened at that first synod. It seemed good to God. Reminds us, I think, of the first reflection that God ever made. It is good. He looked after the work of his hands were all done, the creative works, and it, it was good. And he rested in that contemplative moment, that Sabbath day, in all the good works of his hands. He was thinking of how good it was that his plan was being executed to perform this good thing of saving a people on this world, in this world. So the Holy Spirit and God himself seem at times to be reflective, but I submit to you that's a kind of anthropomorphic way or a human way of speaking of a divine thing that's a great mystery. For it never really seems good to God. It always is good to God, whatever is good. He agrees all the time with what is good because he's the fount of it. And if you think about it, agreeing with what is good when you're the one who invented what is good or eternally thought of what is good, you think about it that way, that's kind of demeaning and not the first thing. I think it's good is a lesser thing than it is good because I said so. All right. We're thinking here of divine things here, and, and I hope you're all right with that. I think you, you want that. This is meat. So more meat, second piece of meat. Here's the Holy Spirit, and the Council of Jerusalem's decision seemed good to him. It was good. It was made by him. Where's Jesus in all of this? Where's Jesus? It's all about Jesus, after all. Jesus Christ is the Savior. And this is what they've been talking about, how Jesus Christ saves sinners, Jew and Gentile, in the same way, by grace alone. Well, beloved, this Holy Spirit is not only the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, but he's the Spirit of Jesus. He's the spirit of Christ poured out. Acts chapter 2, when Jesus rises from the dead, the first thing he does is pour out the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he would have his presence known and felt and enjoyed even more intimately than when he was incarnate on the earth. Now in spirit... And so the Holy Spirit is God, as the Spirit also of Christ is the one who is being spoken of here and who's reflectively contemplating this is good, and here's why. Because especially is that third person of the Trinity, very God, come into our hearts and come into our churches to, to be the governor of the churches and the superintendent, so that we might with him know Jesus. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit because this was for Jesus' sake that it was done. And the whole church had to be led that way or then there would be no foundation 
And whenever churches got together, it would only be faint praise to Jesus that they could give if their decisions were not reflective of the gospel truth of the blood of the Lamb and of the truth as it is only in Jesus. So when it seems good to the Holy Spirit, we're led to this divine assessment of things and this divine assessment of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, his last um, private discourse with his disciples, I'm going to send the Spirit. He will guide you into all truth. He will guide you and he will teach you all things. He will teach of himself and not, uh, excuse me, teach of Jesus himself and not of himself. Maybe there's something here too, the way it's expressed and here the only time it's said of God that it seems good to the Holy Spirit God. Maybe that's why it's expressed this way and not as we would say it was good to the Holy Spirit. It just seemed good. Maybe it's because the Spirit himself as the Spirit of Christ would turn away the attention from himself to Jesus so that we're not left with some wild spirit and happens to commingle with our spirits, the spirit of man, but we're led always to Jesus, and that's how you know you have the Holy Spirit, you know. If you confess Jesus, if you become more like Jesus, and your doctrines are not some wild thing, or some petty thing, or some distracting thing that leads us from the gospel. You have the Spirit, if you're true synodicals of the Holy Ghost, heirs of this great decision. It's all about Jesus. And that's the amazing thing. It's amazing divine that this could be said of divinity. Something seemed good to him. Amazingly wonderful, it, it focuses, this statement does, on Christ, not even mentioning him. But then it seems good to us too. And I'm going to get to some practical implications of that really quick here. And you'll notice there's only two points in my sermon today. But think of that. What's good for God is good for us. That's what the reporters are saying here. Seem good to, uh, to, the, to God, the Holy Spirit. Seems good to us. We'll go along with that. No. We firmly agree. Of course, if it's good to God, if it's good to the Holy Spirit of God, if it's good to the Holy Spirit of Christ, better be good to us. But that's a rare thing. There's an expression here of what's at the bottom of this agreement between God and sinners. It's the fact that they're reconciled by God. That agreement has been affected by God. And now this is a response. There's God doing something good and saying something good, beautiful. And there's this other people. This people that agrees with that. Now you think of that. It takes the Holy Spirit to agree with the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? And 
we learn in catechism truth that this Holy Spirit is not given to everybody. 1 Corinthians 2. The Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. He's said to be the theologian of the Trinity. And no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Teach him. And then the conclusion is made. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us of God. He who is spiritual judges all things, that he himself is rightly judged by no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he might instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. You see, there's an amazing assertion being said in this Rather parenthetical statement, you might think. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Now it seems good to us too. It's this, that what God has done on, planned in heaven and now done on earth, to that we are connected. And with that we will agree and do agree now and will agree forever and ever. It's truth, after all. Truth that lives and makes us live. And Jesus is not just out there or up there. He's in here. He's among us. In spirit. And we agree, this is good. And this is... This is how we respond... And this is how we respond to things that the Holy Spirit was doing, I believe, seems to me, this past week. So what I want to talk about in this second and final point is this. If there's this divine agreement, this first synod between God and people, And if we're called then to communicate out of that divine agreement to all the world, Gentiles, Jews, this thing, salvation is in Jesus and by grace alone. And the only burden we lay upon you is the yoke of Jesus, of truth and of love. If that's the case, our synods and our reacting to the reports of the reporters ought to be in line with how it went here. Now I address you or direct you first of all the fact that there's this knowledge that the Holy Spirit was at work in the first synod because it was certainly revealed. And it's amazing how that proceeds here in the first part of the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas they rose up and they spoke in Antioch against those who were troubling the people and unsettling their minds, saying, you've got to do this and this and that and the other thing. Ten Commandments became 613. And grace was no longer grace. If they had their way, Paul and Barnabas were appalled. and They said, no. We are what we are by the grace of God. And we have a foundation in grace and freeness. And you would now continue this thing called 
the church of Christ on your works, who hath bewitched you? They stood. And then Peter's call to attest and the vision that he received of the unclean animals and that he must eat them and he must be used of God to, for the salvation of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his family. And then James. So there's Paul and Barnabas, there's Peter in this private revelation, this vision. Then there's James. James, the brother of the Lord. And beloved, he was a real brother of the Lord. And his being a leader in the synod is not because of nepotism. You know what that is? Because he's related to somebody important, he gets the first place, the preeminence. Peter, you note, called the first pope, doesn't speak first. And James, when he speaks first, is not simply because he's flesh and blood of, of Jesus, if that were possible, Jesus born of the Holy, conceived of the Holy Spirit, He is one who speaks authority because he reminds the people that the Holy Spirit has spoken of these things in the Bible. That's why when he stands up, he said, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visit of the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. But I show you a more sure word of prophecy. The book of Amos. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is it written. And then he speaks of the fulfillment of the gathering, of the building up of the tabernacle as the inclusion of the Gentiles. And so there's this revelation, and this is what must be the case of any synod and of any who would be Holy Spirit synodicals, heirs of this synod, this truth, must be biblical. We were, by the grace of God, at Synod Niagara. No question about it. There were not great and weighty matters of doctrine discussed. I will say that. There were other things, though. Matters of missions. Matters of the... The the creeds of the church, the church order of the church, seemingly mundane, but done with the Bible in mind. Principles of reformed government, the autonomy of the local church, the necessity of maintaining that, that it's not about we ruling from top down and everybody must step in line. That's what we have been against, haven't we, as URCs from day one. Synodocracy, ruling of a hierarchy. The synod has said, therefore, start marching. But this synod, no synodocracy. The autonomy, the government of the local church upheld. The importance of that in missions, in the work of the church at every level, Be thankful, beloved. Those sorts of hierarchy, but what saith the Lord? All bowing to what the Lord says in the Bible. So very important. And the way 
that activities of any synod must be done and of any people must be done is so important, and it was brought out this time. There was truth and there was love, love for each other among the delegation, as there was here. There was a respect given to Paul and to Barnabas and to Peter and to James and especially to the word of God. There's a respect here that's shown to the Jews, weaker brothers call them that, but ethnic Jews who still are in this transition state from being just Jewish and then Jewish Christian to understanding the liberty in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all things, but they have to be dealt with kindly. You go on the mission field and you're, you're drinking blood and so on and meat and, and all this, rare steak. Well, the Jews couldn't, couldn't, according to their laws, eat meat with the blood. It had to be drained and so on and on. Here's a pattern for true synodicals to remember truth and love. And, and this was certainly evident in, in, the, in the report of the missionaries that they were speaking and seeking to be all things to all men on their mission fields in their church plants here and in Uganda and in Latvia and wherever else it is. It was truth and love. You see, what that does is remind everybody that it's not about your truth or it's not about your love and how loving you can be and how you can outlove this guy or that guy or that church, or how you can out-truth this and that because it's arisen from your own mind. But truth and love, that means the cross. That means where God himself is given the glory as the reconciler. And this was shown, and this must be shown. And then, and there's a thousand things that must be so if we would be truly heirs of this synod's truth and pattern for ministry. Those who received the report of the reporters, when they had read it, verse 31, they rejoiced over its encouragement. I touched on this last sermon, but this really struck my, my soul this past week. The worship service, a man came up to me. There was a prayer service Monday night before the synod, which convened afterwards. And a man came up to me and reminded me of work we had done together about 10 years earlier. We don't meet much. He was a, he was a, a church planner. And he encouraged me in something I guess I had said. I don't know what it was about suffering for Christ's sake, and that he always rehearsed this to, he repeatedly had mentioned this incident years ago to others who were suffering for Christ's sake. And I said to him, thanks. And I said to God, thanks. We need encouragement And the result of this first synod was that the people, when they'd read it, the Gentiles who thought, oh no, now it's going to be burden upon burden upon burden. When they read the liberty that's in Jesus and the grace of God that had visited this earth in him, they were encouraged. That's the Greek word parakalesis, which is from which we get Holy Spirit, the comforter. 
They were Holy Spirited. It wasn't just, yeah, we got this document, now let's go, let's, let's start doing it, clicking it off. They received it, and they didn't have to learn anything more about it because it was truth they knew already. If their Savior lived, and they knew he did, he was now articulated by a decision rather formal, though not near so formal and official and all the parliamentary procedures as our sentence, but nevertheless, there's a formality about it. They knew it. And since that decision agreed with what was in their heart, what they knew of the Scripture already, it was like a meeting of the minds. It was like a meeting all over again, receiving this report of God with these people. Which is just how God works today in our synodical church, in our together on the way church. When God speaks through the reporter, that's a little old me. We hear Jesus, don't we? And we're consoled, we're comforted, we're encouraged, we're moved. Young people, aren't you? Really. You say, well, Reverend Dick, you don't really know me. Yeah, that's true. Getting to know each other. But God does. And he gives a word that goes to every heart. No matter where you've been, where you are, where you're going. And he says, I love you. I love you. Don't you know? And so, if you're going to be synodical, and I am, beloved, and, and you're going to be happy, then comforted. So in the name of Christ, I command you, be happy. And be encouraged. You don't usually think of those as commands, but they really are. So easy it is to disobey the command. Something happens. Something you see. Too cold, too hot, lose a job. Would like to get married, but you have to wait. And so easy it is then to live by sight and not by faith. So we need the reporter, don't we? And we need to ask the question, who hath believed our report? The prophet of old's question in Isaiah 53. Who's really believed it here? Beloved, it's easy not to believe and not to be encouraged. So that this first synod, eh, it's for then. The 12th synod, I don't need to be involved in that. But it's grace that says, I want to be like that delegation of the First Synod. And those who first heard the report of the reporters from the Synod, Judas, uh, uh, Judas and Silas, I want to be like those people who showed this first love, this first exhilaration at this First Synod, and who said, this is amazing. God is not only with individual believers and individual homes and individual churches. He's doing even a greater thing than that. He's with the whole church worldwide. 
And it doesn't matter what the political party is saying and whatever is prevailing or whatever philosophy is ruining the minds of people, whatever universities are corrupting young people. Because this is truth. So be encouraged and rejoice. We should rejoice and be encouraged as well that we were kept at this 12th Synod of our churches from paths we could have gone on. See, there's always a a temptation, and at higher, broader assemblies, there's the temptation, too, to be synodocrats, that is, bureaucrats, so that we get bogged down in all this stuff. And I tell you, there's a lot of stuff in 327 pages of agenda. And you can get all bogged down in this and that and all the methodology of missions and how to do it just this right and this right. And I was saying to myself in preparing for this, why don't we just do the work? Instead of talking about how we're going to do the work. Real danger. There's a danger even then, and thank God we saw the danger, of being distracted by certain proposals from the mission of the church and making it something that would distract us so much that we would lose focus on the gospel as if there was something more or better the church should be focused on. We kept that danger at bay, tabled it indefinitely, never to rise again, hopefully. We stuck fast to the gospel. And beloved, now I report to you these things. Were things done perfectly at Synod? No. Were they done perfectly even at the first Synod? Couldn't have been because there were sinners among whom the Holy Spirit was working. Even think of this. After after this, and all the great and glowing things, you read of Paul and Barnabas, remember that? The end of Acts. They get into a fight. Isn't that striking? Paul and Barnabas. They get into a fight about who should go with them. Should they take John Mark? John Mark wasn't... He wasn't faithful to us before, Paul said. Can't take him with him. Barnabas said, yeah, he's my cousin. We got to do this. So they each went their ways. Oh, so easy it is to be lost in ourselves and forgetting just what God had said and what seemed good to him then, and now we bicker. Don't do that, beloved. Don't do that. Give way not an inch to anything that's not true and that's not the centrality of your mission. Give way, not an inch, to anything that smacks of self-love and pride, the things of carnality, which are not a Holy Spirit synodicalism, but a Holy Spirit synodicalism, or Holy Spirit synodicals. That's you, heirs of a church and a truth. They are strong. They shall be strong. And this, because the Holy Spirit they've received is the Holy Spirit they pray for. And God answers our prayers. Also here. Amen. We pray, Father, that you would bless us. Truly, we are loved of you, Lord. And you love the Church of Christ. And you love it when there's proceedings and conventions 
so contrary to the world's that are biblical and that seek to represent you and to further the mission of the ages, the discipling of the nations, and the baptizing of them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bless us, we pray. May we rise up and be glad. You've done a divine thing among humans so that what seems good to your Holy Ghost seems good to us as well. Amen.